Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, during this Advent season, uh, we have been focused uh, in our preaching on the book of Revelation. Uh, Advent is a time when the church remembers that we live our lives in a time of waiting, that we live between uh, the two great comings of Christ. We live between his first Advent when he came born in a manger to Mary and Joseph, and we await his return. Uh, that he did much of his work in saving the world at his first coming, giving his life for us, and that he will complete his work when he returns and makes all things new. And so we have been uh, focusing our attention on uh, the book of Revelation where we're given a glimpse. The book starts with uh, John saying uh, that a door was opened in heaven and he was invited to step in and to look at the reality behind the reality that we see. The reality, the spiritual uh, reality, not only of our future, uh, but perhaps most particularly of our actual lives in this world in Christ. And so uh, we're going to continue our look at Revelation this morning. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is from Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at their hour was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. 
It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. It's passages like this one why you have not heard Revelation preached all that often uh, in churches. Uh, it, is, it is a strange world uh, to make our way through. Somebody asked me why I'm preaching Revelation at Advent, and I said, a little tongue-in-cheek, because there's only five Sundays, and uh, so it spares me uh, the entire book. There's a story uh, that got some notoriety recently out of Nova Scotia, uh, the story of a doctor, uh, Dr. Daniel McNeely. Uh, Dr. McNeely is a pediatric neurosurgeon, so he performs uh, brain surgery on small children. As he prepared uh, to go into surgery with an eight-year-old boy facing a life-threatening condition, uh, the boy brought in with him a ripped teddy bear, a teddy bear that uh, was torn in his fur. Some of the stuffing was beginning to come out. And he asked the doctor, if it's not too much work, uh, when you're fixing me, could you fix my bear? Uh, could you perform surgery on my teddy bear? And though he might have ignored it uh, in the midst of this life or death situation, uh, when Dr. McNeely finished uh, the surgery on the young boy, he laid the little teddy bear on the table, uh, and he stitched up uh, the rip, and when the boy came to from his surgery, uh, the bear mended was sitting there next to him in his bed. The boy now carries the bear with him everywhere he goes and uses the bear to explain how he got stitched up too, how the, the doctor who fixed the bear also stitched up his head where he had done the work. In the news story, uh, this little boy's father says, Dr. McNeely is one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. Uh, when we get to his office, we're always terrified to death, but every time we talk to Dr. McNeely, we feel better in the end. Friends, Christianity, uh, the message of the gospel, is the story of the mending of the world, the story of the entire world uh, being put back together again, stitched up where we're broken, little boys and little girls, uh, and even uh, maybe teddy bears too. And Revelation uh, works something like that teddy bear worked for that little boy. Uh, like that little boy, we can hardly imagine what God is doing in the world. Uh, that little boy couldn't have sat down with you and explained uh, the mechanics of what the doctor did in his brain that day any more than we can imagine or explain uh, how God is making new our lives and our cities and our world. It stretches our imagination. So he gave that little boy uh, a teddy bear as a symbol, a symbol, a way for him to understand, I've, I'm also making you new. I'm also mending what's broken in you. And Revelation uses a lot of symbolic language, a lot of pictures and images and stories to paint for us a symbolic picture for something that we can hardly imagine the reality that sits just beyond the reality of this world. The reality of God upon his throne and the lamb that we saw last week who was slain that sits at his right hand. The reality of what he's doing in the midst of the suffering and chaos of our lives to make this broken world whole again. And so we've seen uh, in our first couple of weeks in Revelation two glorious opening visions of God on his throne, of the Lamb ascending to his right hand. And we've seen in that something of what it means uh, when we say that God reigns and that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of Judah, the one who's able to, to bring our story, uh, the story of our own lives and the story of this world, to conclusion uh, and to joy. 
And this morning, uh, we look at a story, a set of symbols uh, that are used to explain our role in the story, the special role that God has carved out and written into the story of his redemption for you and me, for the church. You know, sometimes uh, that is the hardest part of the whole story to imagine, right? It's hard enough to imagine Jesus and the angels in the throne room, but it can be even harder to imagine how our everyday lives, how our normal lives of getting together to worship in a church like this one, our normal everyday lives of loving our neighbors, our everyday work of, of suffering and hurting in our relationships and our bodies, how God will take all of that and use it meaningfully in the story that he's telling of the mending of the entire world. When we left off last week, uh, you remember last week we looked at this story where uh, all of heaven sat around asking who is worthy to open the scroll, this scroll that tells the story of God's redemptive work in history. And nobody could be found to open the scroll until the lamb uh, that was Jesus came. And the lamb was found worthy to open the scroll and he began opening it. Everything that happens between that section, which was uh, chapter 5, and today's reading, which was in chapter 11, describes what happens as the scroll begins to get opened. Um, these are a lot of the stories that you hear, the symbols that you know maybe in Revelation as the, as the seals open. Uh, first, the, uh, the four riders of the apocalypse come, these uh, signs of God's judgment and suffering on earth. Uh, then there's a pause between the opening of the sixth and seventh scroll. There's a vision of the church in heaven. Then finally, the seventh seal is opened. John is given the scroll, and then this story in chapter 11 is what John speaks uh, when he receives the scroll. And so this chapter really, uh, we're skipping over some ground uh, here, but this story really does mark the, what's the content of the scroll that the Lamb opens. The content of God's work in history uh, is all about how God uses his church in his story. Remember we said that John wrote Revelation to a group of suffering Christians, uh, to seven churches in particular who were undergoing persecution uh, under the Roman Empire. In addition to their struggle from the outside, they faced all of the everyday struggles that churches have faced for 2,000 years. Right? They faced uh, doctrinal error, uh, trying to sort out what it is that God said and what they ought to believe. They faced temptation uh, as they lived with a differing set of ethical practices than the world around them. And some of those started to creep into the church just as much as we struggle today. One of the churches uh, even struggled with boredom. Right? Jesus says that you're neither uh, hot nor cold. You're neither overly passionate and excited or cold. You're just kind of lukewarm. Right? And for some of us uh, in our comfortable lives here in the West, when we think of church, some of our first thoughts might be boredom. Right? Oh, another Sunday, getting up and doing it again. And it's to these ordinary churches uh, that John paints this extraordinary picture of what their calling and purpose is in the world. And so in this story uh, today, in this passage, and to understand uh, what this vision means, we have to understand two main metaphors uh, that John is seeing here. One is the metaphor of two cities and then the metaphor of two witnesses that Jesus uses to explain to John uh, what the church is meant to be doing in this world. First, uh, there's this comparison between two cities. 
To understand this, we have to understand that in the, in the entire book of Revelation, uh, John is painting a picture of two different cities whose history makes up the history of the world. There's what he calls the holy city and what he calls the great city. The holy city shows up here in verse 2 of chapter 11, where he says that the nations will trample on the holy city for 42 months. This holy city has at its center a temple. And it's easy for us to assume that the holy city here is the, the earthly city of Jerusalem. And yet, as we look at Revelation as a whole, it's clear that the holy city isn't the same as earthly Jerusalem. That it is the city of God. It's, it's variously called the holy city, the new city, the new Jerusalem. And it's essentially a metaphor for the church. That God is building smack dab within the cities of this world, a new city. A city uh, that has structures, that has institutions, that, does, uh, that has new relationships between people. Just like uh, an ordinary city. Except for in this new redeemed city. Uh, it's centered upon the worship of God. It's centered on God's love for his people. It's centered on their love for God. It's centered on new ways of love between the citizens of the city. It's made up, uh, as we're told later in this chapter, of the, every people and tribe and language and nation knit together now in a new city. Contrasting the holy city, there's what's called here in verse 8 and throughout, uh, called the great city. Uh, chapter, uh, verse 8 of this chapter says, The great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So in contrast to the holy city, there's the great city. Here it's called Egypt or it's called Babylon. Elsewhere, it's really strongly identified with Rome, the new power that was oppressing the church. In a scathing critique here, uh, John also says the city where the Lord was crucified, which is him saying that what you know is Jerusalem, the great and holy city of God where the temple is, is now no longer the holy city. It's part of the great city through its idolatry, through its alliance with Rome. And so he paints this picture that there's the holy city, and then there's the cities of this world. All of the ways that human beings have done their life together. Augustine, a great third century theologian, uh, picked up this metaphor and said that the city of God is centered on the love of God. And the city of man, whether it's Rome or any of the cities that came before it, like Egypt and like Babylon or any of the cities that came after it, is centered primarily on the love of self. It's a city where people seek to get their own and neglect their neighbor. It's a city where people are bent uh, on their own well-being over and against uh, God's glory and the good of their neighbor. And so this holy city that's being built up in all of the nations of the world is centered on the worship of God. That's what we see as this story starts. Uh, John is given a job to do. He's given a measuring rod like a staff and told, rise and measure the temple that's in the holy city, the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. And so what he's saying is that there's the holy city, and at the center of the church's life is the temple, the house of God's presence, the reality that God dwells with his people. And he says that though the outside of the temple might get trampled underfoot, Though the church will suffer, though at times the church will seem to be failing, though the church at times will be seen to drifting towards nothing at all, 
that the core of God's presence with his people will never be taken away. That God's temple marks his commitment to live with us. Remember what we say at the passage we'll often reflect on at Christmas time. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God made his tabernacle with us. That in Jesus we see God's commitment to make his life with us in communion with us. No longer defined by an earthly temple in Jerusalem but now located in the presence of Christ by his spirit in each of us. That his presence, uh, even when we suffer, even when we seem to be failing, God will dwell with us, both now and forevermore. That's the reason uh, why Christ came. We see in Revelation that, that worship is at the core of the church's life forever. Right? That, that after this world, as we know it, uh, passes away, that worship is at our center. There's a beautiful passage uh, and a parallel passage to this one, Revelation chapter 7. John's given a vision of the church around the throne of God. And this is what he's told. They have washed their robes and made them white. This is chapter 7, verse 14. Made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so we see in heaven, around the lamb's throne, our life is centered around the worship of God. And this chapter shows us that we're to practice in this life what we will spend eternity celebrating before the Lamb, which is worship, right? For all of the other good things that the church does in the world, for all of the mercy and service and justice stuff that the church tries to do in our neighborhoods and our cities, the core of the church's life is worship. The core practice of what we do together is, is what we do right now. When we gather before God, when we sing his praise, when we offer him our prayers, when we hear from his word, when we gather around his table, those are the moments when the church is most the church, when we're centered around the love of God and remembering God's love for us uh, that forms the basis of our life with him. That is what we are here to do. This morning uh, in the Chengdu province of China, another group of Christians woke up to worship. And they gathered together. These are the members of Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu. This church can rightly be considered in some ways a sister church of our church. They are a member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of China. Uh, they are a member of the West China Presbytery, just like we're a member of the North Florida Presbytery. Uh, these are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. On December 9th, uh, their pastor was arrested along with all of the other staff and elders of the church. Uh, accused of conspiracy against the state. They were arrested. Uh, it's about a 500-member church, and to this point, about 100 of them have either been uh, taken into custody or placed under house arrest. But still, uh, this morning, it was actually about 8 p.m. our time, uh, the remaining 400 members of this church did what they did every Sunday morning. They got dressed and they went to church. Uh, when they got there, they found steel bars across their door. They found armed police outside telling them that they were no longer able to worship as a church. 
When they attempted to go back to their homes uh, to worship God in their homes, they were barred from assembling uh, in any type of number. The government uh, of China is bent on destroying this church. Uh, We don't know what will happen uh, to them or to their pastor, Wang Yi. But they posted an online update this morning uh, after their attempt to gather. And this is what they offer at the end of this update. Lord, today we worship you in police cars. We worship you in police stations. We worship you in detention centers. We worship you in prisons. And we worship you in our homes. We have no other goal except to worship you and you alone. We ride in buses heading to police stations as though riding down the road to Zion. For you tell us, Lord, that you are looking for worshipers who worship you in spirit and in truth. May you be pleased with our worship. We have nothing left to offer you but our hearts. We offer them up promptly and sincerely to you now. Wherever I am, whatever I meet, I will follow you forever. Right, this is a context that is strikingly similar to the context into which Revelation was written. Churches struggling to make sense of their lives and their life together in the midst of the city of man, the great city, uh, putting all of its resources to stopping them from doing that. And here's these Chinese Christians saying, we went to worship because worship's what we do. Worship is at the center of our life. And that worship cannot be snuffed out. Revelation paints a picture that is counterintuitive, which is that the great cities of this world, whether they be the cities of Rome or the cities of China, even the cities of our own nation, are on a path of decline, right? None of them will come as they are into the new heavens and new earth, apart from being transformed by Christ. And yet, uh, while it declines, the city of God grows and thrives. Wang Yi, the pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church, he had been, uh, he was arrested on December 9th. He had a handwritten letter that he had uh, arranged to be released if he was detained for more than two days. So at 48 hours, this letter was released. I won't read all of it. You can find it online. It's, it's absolutely stirring. But this is what he wrote, uh, just a section of it. He said of this great conflict between the city of God and the city of man, He says, moreover, I must point out that persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and the most horrendous evil of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians, it's also a sin against all non-Christians, for the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. If this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. This is a gutsy letter to write when you're in prison for conspiracy against the state. For on earth, there has only ever been a thousand-year church. There has never been a thousand-year government. There is only eternal faith. There is no eternal power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be interrogated and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, 
that I might take the gospel to them. A beautiful picture of how in the midst of persecution and suffering, God builds his church. He builds his city. How does he do that? Well, he does that, we learn, through the other metaphor that we get here, which is the metaphor of the two witnesses. The two witnesses here are a symbolic picture of the church's work. Right? You need to forget any uh, stories you've heard about uh, waiting for two witnesses to come at the end times under the Antichrist, after the, after the rapture, uh, during the tribulation, and whatever, whatever uh, Kirk Cameron movies you've seen about uh, how all this shapes out. You're going to need to trust me a little bit uh, that this is a metaphor for the church's work today in the world. If you look around and go, when are the two witnesses coming? You are, you are them. You are the two witnesses. How do we know that? We're told that these two are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This is a direct uh, picture drawn from the first chapters of Revelation where all of the churches sit as lampstands before the throne. So the two here is, is one of the seven lampstands that sit before the throne. And it's not two because only two of the seven are going to be witnesses. It's two picking up uh, the Old Testament practice that in any court of law, the testimony of two witnesses was considered valid. Right? We see this pattern throughout the New Testament. Jesus sends his disciples when he sends them out on their earthly missionary journey, sends them out two by two. The idea being that the, the two witnesses together pointing to Jesus would be a credible witness. Right? We're told that these two in their suffering and death are seen by all the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies. Right? In our world today, you can think of something happening that the whole world could see. Right? It goes up on YouTube and now everybody can see it. Right? That's not the world that John lived in. That's not the world that this church lived in. For a church to be seen by all the peoples and tribes and, and languages of the earth meant that they were in all of the cities of the earth. Right? So this is a symbolic way, it's a, a type of symbolic parable of talking about the work of the church. We're told in chapter 7 that they're gathered from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. And now here they are sent to every tribe, people, tongue, and nation to testify to who God is, to testify as witnesses to the people of the world. So these two witnesses, we're told, go to the great city, right? They're emissaries of the holy city, going out into the great city to announce a message. That's what a witness does, right? A witness testifies to what they've seen and known. And right, remember that Christianity at its basis is a belief in something that happened in the world, right? It's not just a, a set of ideas or a set of beliefs. It's built around a witness to, an a witness to events, Right, that Jesus lived, that he died at the hands of Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that on the third day after his burial he rose again, he appeared to many people, and then he ascended into heaven. Right, it's built on facts that were witnessed uh, within the, the, the lifespan of those people, the lifespan of men like John. And so they went out as witnesses, not to tell people what they thought, not to tell people what they believed, but to tell people what they saw. Right? We stand on the basis of, of witnesses. We continue our ministry, the, the ministry of Christians today, 2,000 years later, is still a ministry of witness. Not of what we've seen with our eyes or touched with our hands like the first apostles, but witnesses of what we've experienced and what we know to be true, that we were dead and we're alive again. 
right? That we were broken and are now being made new and made whole again. That Jesus by his spirit is alive and doing real work in the lives of real people. And so we're sent out as witnesses. We're sent to witness to God, not only in our words, but in our deeds. It's amazing. I love this, uh, these details that are thrown in here in verse 5. If anyone would harm them with fire, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Before you run out and try to breathe fire on anybody or uh, try to strike the St. John's and turn it to blood, uh, this is, these are the powers that what God worked through two Old Testament figures, Elijah and Moses, being attributed to the church. Right? Elijah shut up uh, heaven so that it didn't rain as a sign. Then he called for rain and it rained. Moses struck the waters with his staff and it was made blood. He sent plagues. These are the two Old Testament prophets uh, that are exemplars. These are the two that appeared to the right and left of Jesus um, at his transfiguration. And so this is John in this vision saying that you continue the ministry of Moses and Elijah. Like they before you announce God's message to their peers, to their contemporaries. You announce the message of God to your contemporaries. And just as their announcement was accompanied by deeds... Your proclamation and announcement has to be accompanied by deeds, right? We see this throughout the pages of the New Testament, that when when the witnesses go out to announce the gospel, they do it both with their words, with, with their words about Jesus, and with the things they do in their lives. And so the church is meant to do those two things together. Right? It's not just the preaching of the word uh, that's the ministry of the church. It's not just what I do while you all listen. Right? It's not even just the work that you do in proclaiming, right? When you uh, talk to a neighbor, talk to a friend, talk to a family member about your faith. It's also the tangible acts of love and service and healing that you do in your life towards the people around you. This week, uh, I got to participate as well as uh, seven or eight other volunteers from the church. In a really amazing day, we partnered with some other churches and organizations in the city to help put on a job fair uh, for people who uh, have a felony conviction, so people that these are these were it was entirely and explicitly uh, for people who had done time in prison, and were now out and looking for a chance to start over in a new career. Some of you know how difficult that could be. Some of you were, were there with us that day, right? It can be incredibly difficult to find a second chance, um, but a group of Christians believing that God is a God not only of second chances. Right? If God was a God of second chances, I would be, have been in trouble a long time ago. But God is not a God of second chances. He's a God of third, fourth, fifth, a thousand chances. Right? He's a God of grace and mercy. And so we, as a group of Christians, got together with, job, with employers who had already knew what they were coming towards and knew they were willing to employ anyone uh, with these convictions on their record. Uh, stood and, and people were interviewed. Over 500 people came through this, this thing. Uh, hundreds either got jobs or follow-up interviews and that kind of thing. It was a beautiful thing to witness, right? And, and one of the things that we, that we talked about heading into this was we want to treat every person who comes in with grace and with dignity. These are people who are well acquainted with shame. Some of you know that, know, know the dread of when you get to the box on a job application, Right? Have you ever been convicted of a, of a felony, having to check yes, and knowing the questions that were going to come or the, the polite but stern no's that were about to follow? 
So we said, hey, even if you can't hire these people, shower them with grace, treat them with dignity. These are people made in the image of God, right? And we did that, right, knowing that, yes, people have deeper needs than a job, right? We believe that everybody needs to hear the gospel. They need to know Jesus. But also believing that if the church is to have credibility in the world, that our, that our proclamation by word needs to be adorned, needs to be dressed in our proclamations by the things that we do, the ways that we love, the, the opportunities that we offer. And so that's just one small picture. It was, a, it was a, an absolute privilege to, to be a part of it and to be a part of it with so many of you. But it's a part of what Jesus is talking about here, announcing the gospel in word and in deed. It might not be as spectacular as if I could breathe fire on people, right? Or if I could, you know, work to some of the stuff done here. But I tell you what, to those several hundred people that came through, it was a whole lot more valuable. <laughs> um, it, was, it, was, it was a gift of God's grace. And that's what the church does in the world. We announce the gospel in word and in deed. These two men do their ministry dressed in sackcloth, a sign of repentance, like Jonah went to Nineveh, urging the people to repent and to believe. These two witnesses go to the cities of this world. And theirs is a life of suffering. Uh, to the point that they uh, die, lay unburied in the streets, mocked, and then on the third day rise again. That should sound like a familiar story to you. Uh, if you were here with us over Easter, you heard us tell a similar one, right? That Jesus uh, lied dead in the grave and after three days rose again. What this part of the story tells us is that the church does our ministry in the pattern of Jesus. Right, the church's history, if you look at it for the last 2,000 years, is really the story of us wanting to believe we can do the ministry in some other way. Right, wanting to believe that the gospel can go forward with power and might, that if we win enough elections and get the right people in power, then the church can seize control, we can do it our way. And it's a story of that falling short so many times. Because the witness of the church is witness in the, pow- in the pattern of Jesus that we witness to him by weakness and suffering, even by death. That it's our suffering, it's our laying down our lives as he laid down his life in the hope of resurrection, in the certain knowledge that there's life on the other side of suffering, that there's life on the other side of persecution, that resurrection wins out. Because of that, we have the freedom and the power to lay down our lives freely, knowing that the gospel works through the suffering of the church. I would not be surprised, and don't be surprised, if the gospel flourishes in China after this crackdown uh, on the church. That is the way it has always worked. When Rome tried to clamp down uh, the church in the first and second centuries, the church blossomed. So that after the Roman Empire fell, the church now uh, is a global empire around the world. Don't be surprised uh, when it happens in China and in all the nations of this world. John is trying to prepare churches for the suffering that they're going to and that they are experiencing. It's important uh, when you head into suffering, as each one of us is, right? We don't, have to, uh, we don't have to imagine suffering in this life. It's not just limited to the persecution of the church. Every one of us knows what it is to suffer, to suffer the breakdown of our bodies, to suffer the breakdown of our relationships, to suffer uh, the, the, the bondage of addiction and sin. Right? We know what it is to suffer. We know what it is to struggle. John here says you can struggle in hope because you know that you are joined to Christ, that his story is your story, that though you suffer and die even, you will not ultimately be extinguished, 
because you are also partners with him in his resurrection, that you will, like these witnesses, be told one day to come up here by your Savior Jesus, who will raise you uh, from the brokenness and death and corruption of this life into new life and new bodies forevermore. The story ends with a note of hope. As these two are resurrected, as the world sees their suffering and their death and their resurrection, in that hour there was a great earthquake, verse 13, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That doesn't on the first reading seem like good news, Um, but the standard expectation, if you look at the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, was that the prophets were listened to by a minority, right? The expected uh, way that it worked was the the small remnant of people listened to their message, and then nine-tenths were destroyed, so only a few repent. Here, in the way that, that he's telling the story, and again, we don't look to Revelation for mathematical numbers. You know, it's not a numbers. Uh, this isn't a prediction. But the, the spirit of what's told here is that one-tenth suffers and nine-tenths turn and give glory to God. This story ends with what would have been seen as an explosion of hope. That yes, God judges sin. Yes, God judges evil. But through the suffering witness of the church and their vindication by Jesus, ultimately the world is caught up into the worship and glory of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that you are building a new city in the midst of the cities of this world. Lord, we thank you that we get to be a part of the new city. Lord, we are not all of the new city, but here in Jacksonville, in our time and place, We are a corner of the city that you're building. May our city uh, be oriented around the love of God and our neighbor. May our city be known for acts of service and sacrifice, love and giving and generosity. Lord, may we take up our place in the long line of witnesses from John's day to our own that have announced the good news of your kingdom with our words and with our lives. When we suffer, may we do so with hope and joy, knowing that the suffering of this world isn't the last word on the matter, but that because the Lamb who is slain is worthy to open the scroll, this story ends in resurrection joy. It ends with the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdom of our God and His Christ. It ends with transformation and beauty and joy. Lord, help us to live out our callings in this world uh, with our eye towards the world that you are making. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.